0: Thank you, Nell. In Christ alone, our hope is found. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you'd pass those to the aisle, we'd love to collect them and pray for you this week. I wanna thank you for your prayers on behalf of uh, our family. Uh, Gwen's uh, father passed away uh, this week, um, peacefully in his recliner, and she has gone to Florida to be with her brothers, and uh, we appreciate you lifting our family up there, and also my mother's illness. I uh, was in North Carolina this week. I would ask you to pray on her behalf that God's healing hand would t- Touch her bone marrow and that she would produce red blood cells and white blood cells and platelets uh, that would allow her to press on. We'd love to have her uh, for many years to come. So we appreciate those prayers and many other needs in this body. Uh, Gwen and I looked at one another and our conversation rather that um, uh, I just can't imagine going through this world without the Lord. And one of the major Parts of the ways that we experience His grace is by being in a local church family where we can bear one another's burdens and care for one another. And I love you so dearly, and I'm so privileged uh, to pastor this church and to preach God's word to you, um, not only this morning, but um, over these years. Romans 7. Romans 7. I want to preach a message to you um, entitled. Who is Paul talking about in Romans 7 and why that's important? Romans 7, 13 through 20. Uh, There are many things in this world that can dash our hopes and tear our dreams apart, to quote the soundtrack from the Les Miserables. Uh, For some, it comes through loss and setbacks and trials of life. I remember traveling into Florida some years ago on I-75 and seeing two... um, senior adults on stretchers as the ambulance had come, their motor home had been decimated in a crash and just thinking, I wonder how long they saved to be able to go have a little time together in their latter years, dashed on Interstate 75. For others, unmet expectations and painful circumstances. I didn't know marriage was gonna be like this. I didn't know the job was gonna be like this. And it brings a sting to life. And they conclude that life will never be the same again. I don't have any hope. Others try to cope with their failures as they wash the shore of their mind um, day by day with thoughts of happier days. But really having to deal with bad decisions and difficult circumstances. For many, they're banking all of their hopes on the empty promises of this world, which we, we learn in the Bible is a fool's errand. In 1 John 2, we're not to love the world, and by the world, the the things the world offers, the mindset of the world, an agenda that is is opposed to God's rule and God's reign. In fact, we're called to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And we're not to love the world, nor the things in the world. For all that is in the world, it's the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, that's passing away. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. In reading, in reading Romans 7, I, I find another reason that people lose hope, and that is because they've been t- taught or conditioned that they relate with God and others through a perfectionistic performance. And they're, they live with a constant sense, I'll never measure up, I'll never be right, I'll never hit the mark. And in the religious realm, they view the law as a standard that will be theirs through hard work and effort. Even in Christian circles, there are perfectionistic streams of theology that teach believers can become sinless in this life through a work of the Holy Spirit. They can become without sin. In fact, I have mentioned to you on a number of occasions in my college years, new Christian, new believer in Christ in a campus ministry on, a camp, on the University of Kentucky. And uh, one of my one of the members of that fellowship group came to me one day and said, Jim, I, I, don't, I don't sin anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, what? You've got to be kidding. No, I don't. And then he showed me a couple of verses taken out of context. First John 3, 8. Uh, if you're in Christ, you don't sin anymore. You no longer continue in sin. You no longer sin in the King James. Understanding that it's the idea of continually given over to a sin, not a deliverance from sin in every aspect in the believer's life. In fact, in 1 John 1 and 2, it's important in understanding uh, sin in the believer's life. John's writing to believers and he says, if anyone says that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's talking to believers, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in Jesus Christ, our standing with God has been changed forever by faith in him. And we do need cleansing that our fellowship with him would be undeterred. The weight of this unattainable burden is heavy indeed as they come to see that they they will never measure up to God's standards presented in the law, let alone their own. J.I. Packer was in that category. He died two years ago and left with him just a wake of wonderful deposits in the Christian church. He, He was converted to Christ in 1944 while attending Oxford University where he studied Latin and Greek and in his spare time played in a jazz band called the Oxford Bandits. While training for ministry, he had been held in sway by some popular teaching on campus that I just described. So little had changed from 1944 to 1985. Apparently, it still swirls around in one form or the other. And while training for ministry, he had been influenced by this teaching, this perfectionistic second experience of holiness, and Packer had a, a very sensitive conscience and, and, and knew that he was not perfect. No matter how many times he rededicated himself to God, there was no perfection. And Packer was led to such despair, he has said in print that it could easily have led him to suicide, which is not the way to go ever. Ever. So one evening he heard a sermon from a relatively unknown preacher named Earl Langston. And he said as he heard the word of God preached, the the scales fell from my eyes and I saw the way in. That coupled with the reading of John Owen on indwelling sin and J.C. Ryle and his book on holiness. He learned the biblical realism and the battle of indwelling sin in the Christian life. He also learned that in this ongoing fight of faith, there remains a glorious rest that comes from God's righteousness imputed to us by faith in Jesus Christ. That I pray you know. And while we want to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord, how it guides me and reveals the character of who you are and your holiness, that I would love it, I realize that my hope and stay is in Jesus Christ who kept that law perfectly and he is my righteousness and indeed my savior. So in Romans 7, Paul is describing a fierce inner struggle with sin. You ever been there? He, in fact, he says in the latter part of the chapter, which we will return to in January, wretched man that I am in verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is describing a fierce inner struggle. So back to the question, who is, who is Paul talking about in Romans 7? Is he talking about himself as a, a lost person before Christ? Is he talking about a carnal life existence? Or is he talking as the Apostle Paul writing in real time in the book of Romans? More about that in a moment. But let's get to the text I'd like to present the message this morning with three, three points, and hopefully it'll make a major point. But first, coming back to our greatest problem. Coming back to our greatest problem, verse 13. Paul writes in verse 13, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did that which is good then bring death to me? Speaking of the law, by no means. It, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, exceedingly sinful. So Paul's argument here is powerful and it's focused. The law is not sinful. Verse 12 tells us what? It is holy and righteous and what? Good. Holy and righteous and good. So he's arguing for the goodness and the spirituality of the law of God. In fact, he says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual. Man doesn't live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill them. In verse 16, the last part of verse 16, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And going beyond our focus this morning, but looking at verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Verse 25, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. So Paul is not disrespecting the law. He says it's, it's something else. It's, it's the sin within me that I'm I'm battling. If something as good as the law accomplishes these results, then something is radically wrong somewhere else, and that somewhere else is in our hearts. We see how sinful sin is when, when, when it takes something good like the law to produce tragic outcomes. So if the law causes so much difficulty, what useful purpose is it for believers because we don't want to be a congregation that says we have no use for the law of God in our life, we do. So, what, what what influence should it have upon us? First, I would say that the law reveals God's nature, God's character, and His will. Alex remind us of the tough go of reading through Leviticus. It is a tough go, but it's God's word. And it's his time-specific revelation to the nation of Israel where he gave ceremonial law, where he gave civil law, and where he gave moral law. And the moral law of God transcends the specific laws that were given to the nation of Israel that are in real time now. How can you determine which is the difference when it talks about don't boil a kid in its mother's milk? What's that talking about? Well, that was a, a, a... A culturally, culture, a practice of culture that um, God wanted His people to live differently than the nations around Him. Often, that is the case when you read these bizarre laws, which are not in effect for the believer now. But His moral law is. His His moral law is. We read of it in the Ten Commandments. It's reiterated in the Book of Leviticus. It's repeated in the New Testament. And it guides us into how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. It reveals God's nature. The God of heaven, is he holy? He is holy. Is he righteous? He is righteous. Is he omnipresent? He's omnipresent. He's faithful. Not only that, secondly, the law establishes what is right and what is wrong. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a culture where nobody knows the answer to that. Anywhere. It should not be so among the people of God. Understand, friends, as we listen to the arguments today on the various cultural and social issues, human autonomy is at the top of the list. Whatever you choose to do, that carries the day. Remember this, that you and I as the followers of Jesus Christ and the church of Christ is to be a prophetic voice, to say, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on, and a world that just flows in its own direction. Oh, friends, would you join me in praying that we would be that? Because the rub will come when those who name the name of Christ will say, look at those bigoted people over there taking the stand on marriage. Look at those narrow-minded bigots who take a stand on moral issues and on truth. Look at them. And sometimes it'll come from within. May we stand on the word of God and on the truth of God because he has established what is right and what is wrong. So from the Garden of Eden to the Golden Calf. From the flood of Noah to Ananias and Sapphira, from the Tower of Babel to the cross of Calvary, from the pain of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers to the great white throne judgment, we learn the devastating power of sin from the law of God. The day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Not only that, the the law destroys self-righteousness. In Genesis 18, when Sarah, the wife of Abraham, learned that she would bear a son, what did she do? <laughs> Can you hear her laughing in the tent? <laughs> I, I do when I read Genesis 18. They were old, advanced in years, and she laughed. And she said, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return. And this time next year, Sarah will have a son. There you have it. But Sarah denied it, saying to all those who believe they've never broken the law of God. I didn't laugh. And my favorite rebuke in the Bible as she was afraid, the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. You did. So if he can see what a, a woman, mother-to-be, would do within the confines of her tent, do you think he sees everything? He sees everything. The law destroys self-righteousness. Paul shares several important discoveries that that he he learned in trying to deal with his old sinful desires. And we'll see this emerge as we walk through it. And even already, we've seen first that it's not enough to know the law. Paul knew the law. Verse 9, he said, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive in me. It's not enough to know the law. I'll always remember D. James Kennedy, who said in one of his sermons, you know, forget knowing the law or trying to be saved by the law. I am envisioned God in a humorous moment might say, if you could even name the law, the Ten Commandments, I'd let you in. People don't even know that. It's been witnessed with the interviews on the street, you know, interviewing people on biblical questions. We have a a culture that doesn't care about the Word of God. Not only that, self-determination to, to want to do what is right, that, that's not enough either. He says so in verse 15, what I, I do not understand my own actions, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I can certainly relate with that, can't you? Becoming a Christian does not stamp out all of sin and temptation from a person's life. That's his point here. And I'll list reasons why I think that's what he's talking about. He's referring to indwelling sin as a believer. While we have been rescued from the wrath to come... While the grace of Jesus Christ has brought his redemption to us, while we are indeed new creatures where the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we have an indwelling sin nature that we have to contend with. And they don't, it doesn't measure up to God's standards in the law, not even to mention measuring our own standards. We blame shift, we put off, we blame others. We can't handle that kind of scrutiny. And we all sense that. I was reminded visiting my family uh, of a marquee that read, Stop blaming the holidays. You were fat in August. <laughs> That's good. We, we can't handle that kind of truth. Thank you, Dean. So the Apostle, again, the Apostle John referred to the culprit along with others. We we want a blame shift. We like to hold on to our self-respect, and the law slays all that. It reveals, it arouses sin, and then uses sin to destroy us. And I don't think we see it that way. Apart from the saving grace of, of Christ, he keeps us. From ourselves. Maybe you heard the old illustration of how Eskimos kill wolves and how you know, sin can be just an insatiable yielding. So, uh, when, when a wolf is re- reaching, re- wreaking havoc in a village, it's been said that an Eskimo will sharpen his knife to the edge of a razor and that they will kill a seal or some other animal and will plunge the knife into the animal and then hold it out into the frozen Alaskan air to freeze solid. Then they'll go in again and in essence make a big bloody popsicle. And then the wolf comes and first he comes by the smell then he will lick with his tongue which becomes faster and faster and then Uh, Driven by the smell and the taste of blood, the wolf just enters into a feeding frenzy. And before long, he realizes that the blood he's now drinking is his own, bleeding out. So we see sin's devastation all over our planet where people are given every addiction, every burned-out relationship, every broken marriage, every corrupt government, every breach of integrity goes back to this devastating problem. This brings us back to, to our greatest problem again, dealing with sin in our life. So who's the, man, who's the man described in Romans 7? Romans 7 is one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament, in the book of Romans and all of the New Testament. Who's Paul speaking of? Who's this troubled man who seems to be divided and fractured Is he an unsaved person, living B.C.? Is that what Paul's referring? This is what I was like before I came to Christ. Is he describing maybe a, a third category, which is popular in some circles of a carnal Christian, which I hate that teaching. That's a no man's land for the believer. Is he talking about a person who's come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit but who is not yet born again? Or is Paul actually speaking of a mature Christian and real Christian experience? And I think it's that. I believe Paul is referring to the mature Christian and he's speaking in Romans 7 of the common experience that we all have in battling indwelling sin. And many can lose hope. And I think it's probably... uh, uh, not being well-taught in this area that leads to such a fickle response to the, to the, to, to the Christian life where the ups and downs and the, you, you reach a down point and you don't see them for three weeks. But then it's time to get back going and they come back for a season. Up and down and up and down. And what we need to understand is that we all deal with indwelling sin and we will deal with it until... We're in the presence of the Lord, saved to sin no more. So Paul is speaking of himself in these verses. Why do I believe that's true? Well, he mentions um, personal pronouns, first-person pronouns. He uses I, me, and my 40 times in this text. And he does so in the present tense. This is going on now which indicates to me that he's referring to himself and the struggle that he's facing. And we see it in statements like, I am a flesh. And flesh here is not the actual skin. It's the human nature, the fallen human nature. All of us have coming from Adam forward. What I'm doing, I do not understand, he says. And I can imagine a skeptic saying, well, that figures, yeah, you Christians... um, don't know what you're doing. You don't understand what you're doing. You're crazy. I was reminded of Paul's witness. While Paul may have struggled and not understand what he was doing with regard to his own responses to things and indwelling sin, he had absolute clarity in sharing the gospel. And in Acts Acts 26, he says to King Agrippa, um, he's witnessing to King Agrippa, this pagan king who stopped by his imprisonment in Caesarea, and Festus interrupts and he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. All you're learning is driving you out of your mind. And I love Paul's response. He said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not, not been done in a corner. Speaking of the cross, it hasn't been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe, he says. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. And then Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am in Christ. He had clarity with regard to the gospel but with regard to the struggle of his own indwelling sin, it was perplexing to him. And he speaks of it in first person. Secondly, Paul refers to the law in only um, a way that a, a believer could. He speaks of it in a favorable way. Unbelievers don't look that way at the law. A murderer doesn't say, I love, I love your law, O, o Lord. Someone living in an open sexual sin doesn't say, I love your law, it it sanctions my immorality. I think a third reason would be that Paul referred to his life before Christ radically different than what he is saying here in Romans 7. And I would ask you just to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We've looked at his spiritual credentials in the past, and here... This is Paul's reference to his before Christ life, and it's not the same. It's an, impressive, it's an impressive resume. As he begins in verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Jesus Christ, though I myself, I'm in verse 4, have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So in other words, he's saying... That my life before Christ, I was as religious as you could be. What do you mean? Well, I'll tell you. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Jew whose parents followed the law and I followed the law. And we had Sabbath every week. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a prominent tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. If I had a container of seed, I would pour it out on the table and I would count out my tithe. And I'd give it. I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. I saw it as God's holy mission for me to go and exterminate these following Christ. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. That's how a lost person references the law. I'm blameless. Like the adulterous woman spoken of in Proverbs 30, when confronted, she wipes her mouth and she says, I haven't done anything wrong. Not me. I was blameless, Paul said. And whatever gain I had, when confronted with the gospel, I count it all loss and take all of those religious credentials and view it as a manure pile that I might gain Christ. That's how a lost person views the law. I'm blameless. But that's not what he's saying in Romans 7. What I should do, I'm not doing, he says. That's not blameless. That's, he's not claiming to be blameless. He's saying, I'm guilty. Notice with me, that Paul also refers to himself. He says in verse eighteen, "For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. No good thing dwells in me. Uh, that doesn't sound like boasting, does it? Or confidence? It sounds like David in Psalm fifty-one. John, as we sang this morning, that wonderful Psalm of confession and broken brokenness, a meek sinner." Uh, calling out to the Lord who's been saved by grace alone. And we could say, you know, what about the Holy Spirit within? No good thing dwells within me? And he clarifies it though. The believer has the Holy Spirit. The believer has the, uh, uh, the hand of God on their life. But he clarifies it by saying, this is my flesh. I have no good thing in my flesh. Paul is not referring to his pre-conversion. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he says, as a believer in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? What's the answer to that question? Verse 25, praise be to God. Praise be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. I think of broken men in the New Testament who who feel the weight of their failures? I think of, um, of uh, Barnabas. One of my favorite characters in the Book of Acts is Barnabas. He had some property. He sold the property and laid the proceeds at the the apostles' feet to meet needs in the you know the, the young church. He didn't do that for show. He was a good man. Acts eleven tells us he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He lit up a room, uh, uh, room with encouragement. And yet, when Paul writes to the Galatians, when some of the Ju- Judaizers came up from Jerusalem, some of his friends came up from Jerusalem, Barnabas and Peter sided with them with regard to the, the food and the law and it says in galatians paul confronted barnabas and peter to their face what are you doing showing such prejudice i think of uh, of barnabas and peter and how about john mark we read of him in acts 13 He's on he's on the mission trip with Paul and Barnabas and they get into some difficult circumstances and what does John Mark do he goes home to his mother that's what he does and Paul and Barnabas have this massive fight in Acts 15 and Barnabas says let me get John Mark and he can go with us and Paul says absolutely not he's not going when we were up against it last time, he bailed on us. I don't want him on the team. Oh, but he's changed now, Paul. He's, he's matured. He would be an added asset to our team. He's not coming. He must come. He's not going. Well, I'm going to go this way. And Paul and Silas went that way. But we read something in Paul's letters, in his later letters, about John Mark. In Colossians 4, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. In 2 Timothy 4.11, the last letter Paul wrote, he says in chapter 4, verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you, Timothy, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Paul had seen what Barnabas had obviously seen earlier. He had matured and he was serving the Lord. But do you think in John Mark's mind, once he bailed on the mission trip, once he, we would assume, buckled to his fears, do you think he might have gone home with a sense of guilt and said, oh, wretched man, that I am who in this room has not said that. As a believer, I've been walking with the Lord all these years and I'm still doing these silly, stupid, sinful things. Is there any hope for me? Yes, there is, which is at the heart of this message. Praise be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ who extends his mercy to you and to me even now, right now, to give new beginnings. Let me just say quickly in our following moments, thirdly, a sure sign that you're maturing in Christ. A sure sign that you're maturing in Christ. He says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want but the evil I do not want is that is what I keep on doing now if I do what I do not want it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me for years I've read the devotions or devotional commentaries of Warren Wiersbe he says the many pronouns in this section indicate that the writer in this case Paul is having a problem with with self That is not to say that the Christian is a split personality because he's not. Salvation makes a whole, a man whole, but it does indicate that the believer's mind, will, and body can be controlled either by the old nature or the new nature, either by the flesh or by the spirit. The statements here indicate that the believer has two serious problems, one, he cannot do the good he wants to do. And two, he does the evil that he does not want to do. And that is the question, what are we going to do? So a sure sign that you're maturing in Christ coming out of this is your longings and desires begin to change. The fruit of the Spirit comes from, from your heart more and more, beginning with love. Your life is lived for the purpose of Christ. You care about the gospel. You care about obedience. You care about what you watch and the things you think about. You come to spend your money differently. You want your life to count for him in this world. You find yourself thinking less and less of yourself and growth in humility and grace and compassion. We never get over what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Growth as a Christian is not an awareness of how good you're becoming It really is healthy to understand how sinful we really are so we will constantly turn and depend on Jesus Christ. And that is the point here. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The only way we can live victoriously is to walk by Christ's own spirit and in his power in order that we not carry out the desires of the flesh So may God's hope come to you in the gospel, that Christ is for us, not against us. If you're without him today, I would give an impassioned appeal to you, that you would surrender to him, he who is a awesome God and a wonderful savior, who will receive you even now, if you will turn to him by faith, knowing that his death on the cross and resurrection is sufficient to forgive you and to bring you into his forever family. If you're a believer here today, church family, and you're battling with sin, we're called to fight it. We're called to to battle it, not not flesh and blood, but we're called to battle our sin all the days of our life, to give it to the Lord and to walk in obedience. Our praise team's gonna come. Would you bow bow with me in prayer as we come to the close of this service this morning? And perhaps there are issues on your heart. Maybe you have had something that have, has dashed your, your hopes, your dreams. Maybe you're reeling from circumstances from a sinful season in your life. Maybe you're discouraged. I would urge you, believer, don't grow weary in well-doing. Seek the Lord He is faithful. He will come to you. He will give you rest. He will give you strength. And so really, we're just a room filled with um, strugglers, battlers, fighters, that Christ would be glorified in us. Father, we pray in these closing moments that we would remember you paid it all. All to you we owe. And I pray that in this time, our hearts would be completely yielded to you. In Jesus' name, amen.